Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, good morning to all of you. So glad you're here today. Merry Christmas in advance. Let's open our copies of God's Word together to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, our text this morning. This, of course, is Christmas week. And I think it's okay every now and then to take a break from our verse-by-verse study of Luke and acknowledge that most Christians have on our minds this time of year the doctrine of the Incarnation fact that Jesus left heaven and became man. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we must acknowledge that our Lord has given us a lot of freedom when it comes to celebrating festivals and traditions. And so we must be careful not to make our personal convictions about Christmas one way or another a law. The truth is that we don't know what day on the calendar that Jesus was born. And the truth is that most of the traditions that we associate with celebrating the Incarnation are relatively new, historically speaking. But any time we can gather with our families and friends and think and talk about the Savior is good. Would you agree? So I encourage you to celebrate the Incarnation this week and do so with great joy. Our text this morning is often the text of Christmas cards exchanged among believers. It really is a birth announcement. In fact, that's what I've titled this message, Heaven's Birth Announcement. Let's read it, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. From the time that I was a little boy, I've always wanted to have a large family. I only have one sibling, an older brother, and growing up we often live far away from our extended family. And so being a part of this church has been a great blessing to me. I consider you all my extended family and have for many years. So wonderful to have my own parents living here in Keller now. We can spend time together this time of year. And one of the great blessings of my life was marrying into a large family. The Hoyers, who you just heard playing the piano so beautifully, Jim and Nancy. I married their oldest daughter, Melissa, about 16 years ago. And uh, we get together quite often for family events, and it's always A wonderful time. My wife is the oldest of four Hoyer children, the first to marry. And when our daughter Emma Kate was born 14 years ago, she made Jim and Nancy forever Mimi and Pops. And Nancy added a stocking to the fireplace that Christmas, and nearly every year for over a decade, she has added at least one more stocking. (laughs) As my wife's siblings married and started their own families. After Emma Kate came Madison, and then Aubrey, and Callie, and Ruby, Andrew, and Colson all came within a few months of one another. So they'll get to grow up in the same class. Then came Eliza, Joy, and Cambry, and just a few months ago, Castlin joined the crew. 
And to say that family gatherings are a little different than they used to be is a great understatement. And one of the things that we've enjoyed about these family gatherings through the years is to answer the question, who has a baby announcement? <laughs> well, a few weeks ago at Thanksgiving, it was finally Stephen, the baby brother's turn to announce that he and his wife were expecting and we'll hang at least one more stocking next year. I say at least one more because his wife is a triplet. Something that I have noted about birth announcements in recent years is they have become, shall we say, more complicated. Anybody ever heard of something called a gender reveal party? <laughs> Where the husband and wife do something to, to show either blue or pink to announce it's a boy or, or it's a girl. If you want a good laugh, type in gender reveals gone wrong in your search engine on your computer. <laughs> There's also video, videos of first-time parents telling their parents they're going to be grandparents. And there's all sorts of creative ways they do it with riddles and puzzles. The grandparents try to figure out what's the announcement. Well, we have a birth announcement here in the book of Isaiah and it's not complicated. It's not a riddle. It is straightforward and very clear. It tells its reader that a baby is coming and that baby would be a son. And it tells us what that son would be like. And we know now in hindsight that the baby is Jesus and that the predictions about him are perfectly accurate. So let's walk now through these two verses in Isaiah chapter 9 because they tell us what comes to us because that Christ has come to us. You remember that the human author of the prophecy was Isaiah. And Isaiah lived and wrote about 800 years before the birth of Jesus one of the questions young couples often have about birth announcements is how far in advance should we announce the babies on the way? Well, in the case of Jesus, it was 800 years. <laughs> but truthfully, it goes back much farther than that. Really, it goes back to our first parents, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, you recall that uh, Adam and Eve had committed sin. They had violated God's instruction and prohibition against eating of the tree in the midst of the garden. And he had them all lined up, Adam and Eve and Satan. And that's when he pronounced sin's curse upon all flesh and upon the earth and upon Satan. Genesis 3:14 says, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field on your belly, you will go and Dust you will eat, and the days of your life I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, that is the seed of the woman, shall bruise Satan on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is the very first birth announcement. This seed of woman is none other than the Messiah, predicted in Isaiah 9. This is the first telling of the gospel, the proto Evangelium, we call it. But it didn't stop there. Future prophecies of a coming Savior told us that he would be a royal descendant. In the Davidic covenant, that is the promise that God made to King David in 1 Samuel chapter 7, we're told more about this coming Savior. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring after you. you shall come from, he shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. 
He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with this vision, Nathan spoke to David. In other words, God said through Nathan to David that the Messiah is coming from you, an eternal king. In other words, as Isaiah said, the government will be upon his shoulders. Now he would not commit iniquity himself, but God the Father eventually would treat him as if he had done all iniquity for all of us. So Jesus, friends, is the fulfillment of all messianic prophecy, that a savior would come and be a king. Now, there are good kings and there are bad kings, historically speaking. So what kind of king would Jesus be? Well, this is what Isaiah answers in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The first thing we note about Jesus as our King is that when He comes to reign, He comes with wisdom. He is a wonderful counselor. You're probably aware that words like automobiles tend to depreciate in value over time. The word wonder or wonderful is a word like that. The word wonder that is intended to be rarely used only for the most special of occasions has become so commonplace that we even have a brand of loaf bread named after it. The most common thing in the world. But, but the word wonder as it is used here in Isaiah 9 was not common at all. The word wonderful means beyond comprehension and understanding. That's the kind of king Jesus would be, one who was beyond our comprehension. It, it reminds me of another birth announcement in the Old Testament, that of the man Samson. Before Samson was born, an angel visited his parents and told them that uh, they were going to have a child. He would be a special boy. His father's name was Manoah. And after Manoah received this announcement from the angel, he had a question of his own. He asked the angel, what is your name? And the angel replied, why do you ask me my name, seeing that it is wonderful, that it is beyond your ability to comprehend it? Well, that's the kind of Savior we serve. His might, his glory is powerful. His power is beyond our ability to comprehend. And throughout his life and ministry, Jesus filled people with wonder and does so to this day. His birth caused people to wonder. Even his own mother was filled with wonder when she heard that she was going to give birth to the Savior. The shepherds were full of wonder when the angel brought that announcement to them. The wise men were full of wonder as they followed that star to where he laid. People still wonder about his sinless life. The fact that he could be tempted in every way we are and yet go to the cross without sin. His teaching and preaching often left people in awe and wonder. Scripture says that the people admired him because he spoke as one having authority. His miracles certainly 
cause people to be in wonder, how he cleansed the lepers and caused the blind to see. The way that he died caused even the Roman soldiers to wonder at it, causing the centurion to declare that surely this was the Son of God. His resurrection has filled the world with wonder for 2,000 years. The fact that he is the only one who is more powerful than death. And as he stood there on the mountain and ascended into the clouds in the presence of many witnesses, they certainly had mouth ajar, full of wonder. Jesus is wonderful. But he's called here in Isaiah a wonderful counselor. A counselor is one who gives another instruction or advice. Here is a king who is full of wisdom, not only power, but wisdom. When we think about a wise king, most of us think about David's son, Solomon. In fact, we have a phrase in our vernacular when someone is particularly wise, we say they have the wisdom of Solomon. Well, Jesus had the wisdom of Solomon, but Jesus' wisdom far outstripped Solomon's. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2 that all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. If there's anything to know, it's hidden in Jesus. And so why then is Jesus uniquely qualified to give us counsel, to give us instruction and advice? So I've written down five reasons. One, he created us. He knows all about us. Often when I'm called to a bedside of a dying person, the family asks me to pray that the Lord would spare their life. One of the pleas I offer up to God is, you created this body. You know all about it. You know how to heal it. Well, Jesus knows not only our bodies, but our spirits. He's our creator. He's qualified to give instruction to us because he's omniscient. He knows all things. He knows what is right. And most importantly, he's qualified to give us instruction because he loves us. He's not some distant deity who doesn't care one way or other what sort of decisions we make. He's a sympathetic savior. We are commanded in scripture to cast our cares upon him for he cares for us. He's not cold. He's, he's not indifferent. He's for us. And because he's for us, he listens. He invites us to come with boldness into his presence and make our petitions known unto him, even though he already knows them. He's omniscient. He created us. He's sympathetic to us. He loves us. He listens. But the most important thing to know about Jesus is that he is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. When we have a concern, he's not just a sympathetic shoulder to cry on. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He can do something about our circumstance. And speaking of omnipotent power, that's the second thing we learn here about Jesus in Isaiah 9 is when Jesus comes, he comes with power. He's described here as the mighty God. The word mighty means full of strength and power. In his life, Jesus certainly proved to be mighty. He proved that he was more powerful than sickness as he healed the most feared diseases known to man. He proved to be more powerful than demons 
as they were humbled in his presence and had to do his will. He showed that he was more powerful than nature when he told the storm to be still. He's more powerful than sin, isn't he? As he said to the sinners, thy sins be forgiven. He's even more powerful than death. On more than one occasion, he raised the dead. Lazarus, Talitha, the little girl, the widow of Nain's son. But ultimately, his own resurrection proves that he is more powerful than death itself. That description, someone who's omnipotent, omniscient, loves us, created us, is more powerful than sickness, demons, nature, sin, and death, is a description, dear friends, of God. He is the mighty God. Only God can pardon sin. He's not describing here a man. He's not describing a great prophet. He is describing God in the flesh. And we've been discussing this past year on Wednesday nights in this room, the book of Hebrews, and we're almost through it. I recommend you read it this year at least once. The book of Hebrews has a theme, and the theme is Jesus is better. And whatever you want to put in the blank better than what, it fits, doesn't it? Jesus is better. And so in the very first chapter of Hebrews in his introduction, the author of Hebrews says this, God, after he spoke long ago to the Father in the prophets and in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. Now, the writer of Hebrews is not diminishing the greatness or the importance of the prophets. They were men used by God, many of them mighty and, and great men. But Jesus is better than a prophet. He is the Son of God. He says, in the last days he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he has made the world. He's the creator. And he is the, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. In other words, the writer of Hebrews is commenting on Isaiah 9. He is a mighty God. You'll notice also, thirdly, here in Isaiah 9, when Jesus comes, he comes with provision. He's called here an everlasting or an eternal father. Again, pointing out his deity. Can it, it can only be said of God that he's everlasting. Everlasting goes in both directions. Eternity past and eternity future. John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the word. He was with God and he was God. All things that have been created have been created through him and nothing has been created that has been created except through him. He's the eternal father. Well, we know that there is a mystery called the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one. And so there's a sense in which Jesus is God, but he's not the father. The father is God, but he's not the son, so on and so forth. But when he says here that he's an everlasting father, he means that he is fatherly to those who trust in him. Like a father is what fatherly means. 
And so we need to answer the question, what's a good father like? We're not left to our imagination. The Bible tells us exactly what a good father is like. Scripture says a good father is described as a provider for his family. In fact, the Bible says if a man doesn't provide for his family, he's worse than an unbeliever. And so we know that God and Jesus provide for their own. What do they provide? Well, one, they, they provide for our basic needs as any good father does, food, clothing, and shelter. David said in the 23rd Psalm, leads me beside the still waters. He leads me to those green pastures where I have my basic needs met. In fact, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, my God shall supply how much of your needs? All your needs through Jesus Christ. A good father not only provides the basics to sustain life for his children, he also provides them discipline and training. God does that, of course, through his word. 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for some certain things, for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. He provides our needs. He provides spiritual training. But he also provides protection, doesn't he? Again, in the 23rd Psalm, David said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. That is, they protect me. Those sheep were willing to go to the ends of the world so long as they know their shepherd was with them, protecting them with his rod and his staff. God is doing that for us. But the Bible also says in Proverbs 13, 22, that a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. The Bible says it's not enough to provide for your children in, in this life and train them up protect them. That, that's all well and good. But a good man goes beyond that and he leads an inheritance for his children's children. Let me pose a question to you. Has Jesus left the church an inheritance? He certainly has. The Bible talks much about it. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 4, the apostle Peter describes this heavenly inheritance and the fact that it is superior to any inheritance you might receive in this life. And this is what he says about our heavenly inheritance. It is imperishable, it is undefiled, and it will not fade away. And beyond that, God himself is standing guard over it. That is, there's no possibility that our heavenly inheritance, which is eternal life, could ever depreciate in value, could ever be stolen, because for our heavenly inheritance to be stolen, someone would have to be more powerful than God. And the scripture says he's a mighty God. Fourth and finally, this king whose birth is described in Isaiah chapter 9, 6, and 7, when he comes, with him comes peace. He's described here as the prince of peace. What does it mean that Jesus brings peace? Well, he brings peace from several perspectives. One, his sinless life, his literal death and his glorious resurrection 
brings peace between a holy God and lowly sinners. That's the essence of the gospel message, isn't it? Which Paul describes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15 this way, this way, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, he says. That's the gospel. Jesus came to die to save sinners, to bring peace, in other words, between rebels, sinners like us, and a holy, righteous God. But not only does he come to bring peace between heaven and earth, he comes to bring us peace in our hearts. That's the kind of peace we think about most often this time of year. When we wish peace to other Christians, we want that peace, which the Bible says passes human comprehension to stand guard over heart and life through Christ Jesus. I said earlier that we need to be long-suffering with one another because not everyone celebrates these festivals the same way. But it's not a festival that is proclaimed in Philippians chapter 4. It's just a way of life. Paul says it this way. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known to all men, for the Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your needs known unto the Lord, and his promise is this, and what? The peace of God, which passes human comprehension, will stand guard over your hearts and lives through Christ Jesus. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus, yes, he builds a bridge between heaven and earth, makes it possible that we may enter into a relationship with our Creator. But He also places His Spirit within us, which gives us peace regardless of the circumstances of life. Remember He said the government will be on His shoulders. Remember that Paul says that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so ultimately... The reason Jesus is called the Prince of Peace is because he is one day going to bring peace on all the earth. This is the promise. And unless some of you don't have a television or the internet or a newspaper, it's not now. We don't have peace on earth, do we? In fact, far from it. We seem to be more fractured even in this nation than ever before. And so we cry out, don't we, to the Lord. Lord Jesus, come quickly. And he is coming. This is kingdom talk, dear ones. This is kingdom imagery. We said a couple of weeks ago that the kingdom of God has an already and a not yet element. Yes, Jesus is ruling and reigning in the hearts of his people and in the church. But there is coming a day when Jesus comes literally the same way he ascended literally and he sets up his kingdom here and ultimately will rule a new heaven and a new earth. And the Bible describes that in Luke chapter 11 and if you'll be here next week, we'll talk about it. But it first describes it in the book of Isaiah this very book we're discussing today. And if you'll just turn over a page or two in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 11, I think we'll close like this. 
Isaiah prophesied that a baby would come, but he didn't stop there. I reminded us last Sunday not to leave the baby Jesus in a manger because the Bible does not. He grows up. And that's described here in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Listen, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. And by the way, that's the Davidic covenant. Jesse was David's father. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt around his waist. And hear this, and the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, the young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his glory and his resting place will be glorious. It's not yet. It's coming, but it's not yet. Friends, what about you? Will, will you be there? Will, we, will, will you rejoice at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what Christmas is all about. The first coming, when he came as a baby, glorious, wonderful. But the second coming is the consummation of all human history where he will reign forever and ever as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's pray and thank him for that glorious truth. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the word and how encouraging it is, Lord, that even 800 years before Jesus drew a breath on planet earth, you knew it. You had planned it perfectly, meticulously. It unfolded just the way you wanted it to. And all of human history is still unfolding and will one day be consummated in the second coming. Father, may that blessed truth encourage the hearts, minds, and lives of every believer in this church that you can be trusted. You are everything you said you would be. You are a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father. And ultimately you will be the Prince of Peace. The governments of the world will be on your shoulders and you will rule and reign forever. And we say thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.